exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians have poured into Cairo's Tahrir Square for the latest protest calling for Hosni Mubarak's government to step down, according to the BBC. Correspondents say it is the biggest demonstration since the protests began on January 25th. It comes despite the government's announcements of its plans for a peaceful transfer of power. President Mubarak says he will stay until elections in September. And we'll hear more about the happenings in Egypt from MSU's own Salah Hassan later in the hour. And in national news, Vice President Joe Biden today announced an ambitious $53 billion U.S. program to build new high-speed rail networks and make existing ones faster over the next six years, according to Reuters. But the plan drew immediate fire from majority Republicans in the House of Representatives, who said building high-speed rail requires private investment rather than a government plan. Biden, who estimated that he has ridden Amtrak trains between Washington and his home in Wilmington, Delaware, some 8,000 times, made a strong pitch for rail transportation to enable the United States to compete and lead internationally. And in Michigan news, organizers are making progress on designating two national bicycle routes through Michigan, according to Michigan Radio. A group of avid cyclists is working to designate bike routes, sort of like the U.S. Department of Transportation designates interstate freeway systems. You can ride on two of these routes in Michigan already. They travel mostly along country roads. Number 35 is an east-west route from Ludington to Marine City, and number 20 is a north-south route that stretches for hundreds of miles along Lake Michigan Shore. And on Exposure Tonight, we will be talking about the 28th annual Powwow of Love, as well as the Vagina Monologues, which will be held next weekend. Also in the studio will be Senator Rick Jones, and he'll be in to talk about what he thinks will happen with the Michigan Film Tax Incentive. And to keep up with what you can hear every week on Impact Exposure, you can uh, keep updated on Twitter as well as Facebook. Impact Exposure has our own Twitter as well as Facebook. Um, But before we get to our first guest of the night, last week, MSU Residential College of Arts and Humanities welcomed spoken word artist Kelly Zenyi Zai. Zai has performed at venues around the world and was featured on HBO Deaf Poetry. She has also been acknowledged for her work as a community organizer and activist. Reporter Emmanuel Berry has more. Watching spoken word artist Kelly Zenyi Zai perform is inspiring. Powerful activism. Activism may not be the first verb you think of when you describe poetry, but Zai's poems combine her personal experiences with social issues, creating a unique form of activism. Kelly Zanitzai says she's loved performing and writing since she was young, but it wasn't until she was a teenager that the Chicago-born artist developed a passion for spoken word. I got into spoken word from when I was uh, around 14, 15 years old. I had a high school English teacher who used to sneak us into the bars in Chicago to watch the original poetry slams go down. Um, so as a teenager, I always grew up writing and performing poetry. Based off of my own life, it felt very natural to talk about that. Um, so it's always interesting to me when I meet other artists who aren't familiar or haven't really had the experience of write, of creating work that's very personal to them, um, because that's really been the heart of my cre- at the heart of my creative practice um, since the very beginning. Zai's work stems from a personal place, but it's her ability to connect her feelings to larger ideas that helps her work resonate with audiences across the globe. Sometimes some of my poems just come from this like a little like nagging thing that's kind of like irritating me, and like I can feel it. I'm like, why does this thing irritate me? And then I explore. Um, um, what that's about. And a lot of times it's connected to things that are, you know, linked to something that's maybe fundamentally in, unjust in society or something that, or, uh, you know, different issues that I feel like aren't really being looked at in a very complex way. She admits that her poetry is not the same as lobbying or more conventional forms of activism, but she thinks that art and artists play an important role in social change. Do I feel like I have work that has political content? Absolutely. Um, Do I feel like that my work can help to support the broader range of activities 
that activists do. Yes. Residential College of Arts and Humanities professor Teresa Monberg said Tsai's interest in social justice is one of the reasons she was chosen to be an artist in residence. I think that her work touches on a lot of things that we do in the RCAH. So she's doing a lot of stuff with like story and counter story. You know, spoken word is counter story. She does a lot with activism and sort of um, history, world ethics, transculturation, but also classes in civic engagement and classes on migration and race that we do a lot in the RCAH. Not when compared to the open hand that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Tsai uses her experience as a Chinese-Taiwanese-American to express what it feels like to be an underrepresented minority in America. She jokingly deals with this in her poem, Self-Centered. If I was the center of everything for a day, everything would be aimed towards, dictated by, catered to, tailored for, five foot two, tattooed Asian females. When you turned on the television, no Martha Stewart, Tom Brokaw, Katie Couric, or Stephen Colbert, just five foot two, tattooed Asian females. Size, giving home, makeup black, white, whatever, Asian. also gives voice to overlooked communities in America. I was inspired to write the poem after hearing a pop star on the radio. I started the poem because one day I heard Kelly Rowland from the Destiny's Child say on the radio, she was like, Destiny's Child loves all of our fans, black, white, you know, black, white, whatever you are. And for some reason on that particular day, I was just like, I am so tired of hearing that phrase. I just don't want to hear it ever again in my entire black, life. white, whatever. Sai shelved the poem for a while, but during the 2008 elections, she said she once again was faced with a binary definition of diversity. I, I just thought it was depressing. I was like, why am I sitting here, like, just hoping that there's going to be like an like one Asian or one Latino or somebody, you know, just to say something or or for somebody to just say Asian somewhere, sometime. And then I thought back to that poem that I had started, you know, like I don't even remember. It was maybe like a year and a year and a half before that, and I was like. Oh, I was like, this is what that poem is garbage about, can you know? Ever. Even worse than this is, in your words, we believe in the rights of all people. Black, white, blue, purple. In collaboration green, with director Jasmine Lee Johnson, Zai's production company, Moving Earth Productions, launched a spoken word video of Black, White, Whatever. It ended up becoming a viral success days before the 2008 election. And yellow and brown people do. And although we may not call ourselves these things, but if we are going to relegate our community. As for her current projects. Um, there's a couple things I'm working on that are a little bit under wraps right now, but uh, there will be, you know, in the future I'm working on a lot of uh, video projects and multidisciplinary theater projects in addition to my work um, doing spoken words. We can be sure about one thing with Zai. Whatever she's working on, her voice will be heard. By your corny self, I would like to say that I'm real. I'm here. For Impact Exposure, this is Emmanuel Berry. This girl is yellow. You're listening to Impact Exposure on... tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Salah Hassan. He is with the Department of English. He is also the coordinator of the Islam, Muslim, and Journalism Education at MSU, and he is here to talk about the current political and economic unrest in Egypt. Welcome to the show, Salah. Thank you. Thank you. So to keep everyone up to speed, what has been going on in Egypt? How did it happen? And what, what are things like right now? Well, the protests in Egypt began about two weeks ago, and uh, there has been a tendency to link them to events in Tunisia, which happened a little bit earlier. But there's been a long history of uh, opposition in Egypt to the Mubarak regime, and it's taken different forms over the last 30 years. Uh, this has been the most dramatic and the most uh, effective display of popular discontent in Egypt. And a lot of people uh, believe that one of the reasons why this protest, as opposed to the protests in the early 90s and late 80s, has been 
remarkably effective in galvanizing popular support is because of the role of social media uh, and Facebook, Twitter, and uh, the Internet effectively helping to organize young people uh, in Cairo and beyond. So there, there has been that, that, that. That's a theory. But in, in fact, there has been a lot of um, there's been a lot of history behind this in the sense that over 30 years, Mubarak has faced n a number of um, uh, protest movements, but none of them of the scale. So this didn't just come out of nowhere. Um, so what were the biggest issues Egypt was facing before these protests? Well, the main issues are, are these protests are clearly pro-democracy protests. They're, they're, uh, it's a people's movement. It's largely a youth movement in Egypt. Uh, the population is very young. Uh, a good number, of the, uh, the, the exact percentage of the population under 30 years old is, is probably close to 40%. So you have uh, a young, uh, very internet savvy, uh, cell phone equipped uh, youth population that um, is able to, um, has been able to organize itself in the face of what has been really an extremely repressive regime. Now, um, the Mubarak regime, unlike, say, uh, some of the other regimes in the region or elsewhere, has tended to appear more um, uh, beneficent and kind in its approach to the public. But in fact, there's there's a long history again here of of oppressing opposition movements. Uh, there's many political prisoners. There's been control of the press. And the excuse that's been given in the past is that we are doing this, the Egyptians that is, the Egyptian government has to do this in order to prevent uh, the rise of Islamic terrorist groups in Egypt. Now, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has been uh, targeted quite extensively by the Mubarak regime. And in fact, there's been a lot of repression of the Muslim Brotherhood by the Mubarak regime. But at the same time, there are elements of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Egyptian parliament. So um, so uh, this is not exactly the case. It's not exactly the case that only Islamic groups, popular secular movements, uh, non-religious movements, uh, anti-government, pro-democracy movements, anti or um, pro-human rights movements, and uh, anti-torture groups, uh, journalist groups uh, have been repressed because they have tried to expose the corruption of the regime. Mubarak is estimated to have uh, acquired over the 30 years that he's been in power several billions of dollars in wealth. That is his personal family wealth. Um, and there is, in Egypt, a country of 80 million people, significant poverty. So these are, these are some of the issues. There's unemployment. Um, there's a poor distribution of wealth. And there's a general sense of the in the population that the regime does not represent them and is not not legitimate. And so these are these are some of the reasons. Now you mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood. Can you talk a little bit more about who they are? Okay. Well, I think it would be a mistake to put too much emphasis on it, but the Muslim Brotherhood is a, is an old uh party in Egypt, political party that dates to the 18 or the 1920s, I'm sorry. And it's uh it's been repressed regularly throughout Egyptian history in the in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who led the Free Officers Revolution uh in the early 1950s, uh repressed the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and then subsequently, Anwar Sadat did the same, and Mubarak has done the same. So the consistency uh, from Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was not an ally of the United States, but rather supported by the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, and then subsequently Sadat, who was an ally of the United States, and Mubarak, an ally of the United States, uh, they all have repressed the Muslim Brotherhood. The the actual constitution of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt, it's believed to be the, the most significant um, organized political party. But there are other parties and other movements uh, that are being led by um, various individuals. Uh, in particular, the one I think that is the most significant to think about now is the party um, led by Mohamed Al-Berde, who is the uh, Nobel laureate, Peace, Peace Prize laureate, and has been associated with the youth movement and the protest movement in Tahrir Square. And so there's a little bit of tension there between um, Al-Berde as a leader of a secular, non-religious Egyptian pro-democracy movement and the Muslim Brotherhood. And for now, it seems that they're working together, or at least minimally working together, uh, in opposition to Mubarak and um, Omar Suleiman, the general who was named vice president recently by Mubarak. So what do you think will will be the result of these protests that are happening right now in Egypt? I think that what, what 
it's very difficult to predict, I mean, uh, to play the role of uh, kind of prophetic vision. But I think that we can imagine a number of different scenarios. One would be that Omar Suleiman, who has been anointed, in essence, by the U.S. government to lead the transition, um, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have both uh, accepted his de facto role as the, the leader, in essence, of the Egyptian state right now, even though Mubarak remains the president, that he and the military will be able to ride this out and eventually exhaust the pro-democracy movement and imprison whoever ne the leaders, which happened with Wael Venom, the, uh, the Google employee who was just released um, and was the administrator of the Facebook page. Um, uh, so they, they, there is the, uh, the chance that that would happen, and they would just exhaust these protesters. They would end up, you know, being either crushed or just out of sheer, um, you know, difficult situations going home. And uh, and then, but eventually, the the discontent would continue, and it might take a more dramatic form, might take a more militant form. Right now, these protests, these pro-democracy protests on all sides have been fairly civil. They generally have not involved violence, except when they've been confronted by violent forces. So the danger would be if, uh, and the mistake I believe that uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are making right now, is by putting their um, eggs in the Omar Suleiman and military basket, they are risking later on a much more a militant form of protest that will emerge um, on the on the heels of this uh, particular movement. Um, in my view, it would be in the interest of the U.S. and publics around the world to uh, support Al-Barade and the pro-democracy movements because they offer really an alternative to um, any kind of militant uh, tendencies that one might imagine coming out of Egypt in the future. Um, and th it's important to note that uh, these pro-democracy uh, uh, um, activists have not engaged in what one would call anti-American bashing. I mean, there is a critique of the U.S. Primarily that critique of the U.S. stems from the fact that the U.S. throughout the history of the Mubarak regime has supported it, full, knowing full well that it's a corrupt, illegitimate regime that tortures and has political prisoners, and yet it continues to support that regime. Um, and so... Uh, it's quite remarkable that these uh, pro-democracy protesters in Tahrir Square, which actually means Liberation Square, um, have not actively been burning American flags, have not targeted the U.S., but rather are focusing very clearly their message on the Mubarak regime, that Mubarak has to go. And... Um, there's a people's parliament that's been formed on the ground, and it's open to participation from people in the military, but it would be uh, that that body that potentially could oversee a transition, in my view, much more effectively than Omar Suleiman and the military, which seeks to return uh, to the status quo, more or less, with a new head. So you're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Salah Hassan, and he is with the Department of English, and he's also the coordinator of the Islam, Muslim, and Journalism Education at MSU. So, Professor Hassan, I'm, I'm curious. You've been to Egypt. Can you describe what it was like um, when you were there, and what do you envision it being like once these protests have kind of subsided? Well, the, the, the remarkable thing, I think, for people in the U.S. to understand is that Egyptians and Arabs throughout the Arab world know that their governments are either dictatorial, uh, military dictatorships, or monarchical dictatorships. I mean, this is the case almost throughout. Every single one of them has been supported by the U.S., with the exception of Syria. And so there's a great degree of cynicism among the publics with regard to their own governments. They do not see their governments as legitimate. And in encounters with many Egyptians, almost without exception, uh, they are critical of their government. There are lots of Mubarak jokes circulating uh, informally. and um, But the public opinion, as it ex is expressed, say, on the news or the way that the media functions in Egypt is state-controlled. And so you never get a sense of that when you are in Egypt. It's, it's impossible to really, it seems staged and acted out. Because when you go out into the street, you hear lots of, um, uh, uh, you know, real criticism of the regime by individuals who may not feel comfortable speaking publicly about about these issues or and would never get into print in the media in Egypt. Uh, that said, uh, there's a great degree of... Um, 
of uh, openness within the society with regard to foreigners coming there. Tourism plays a huge role in the economy. And right now what's happened is that, of course, tourists have fled the country and uh, the tourist economy is is, is uh, crashing. And that, in fact, is may in fact play into the hands of the government, who, which would then blame the pro-democracy protesters. But when I was there this summer and any time in the past, my experience was that uh, Egypt is, in fact, um, a split society, one where you have the government and its official institutions, which is the public face of it to the external world, and then you have the people. And there's a clear division there. And the people here is, of course, something of a metaphor. Some people, of course, those in the tourist industry, which is largely run by the government, have an interest in a return to order because they just want to make money and they're not subject to, they're not politically active. They have, you know, whatever their opinions are, they keep to themselves. Whereas you do have people like journalists, activists, students, youth groups, uh, political parties, which want to have a more open society. Right now, that's not available. It's socially open in many ways, but politically, it's very restricted. And uh, there's a lot of fear of the government and its security apparatus. And the U.S. government is fully aware of that and uh, really has done very little to put pressure on Mubarak to uh, to reform uh, his policies on those issues. So, Salah Hassan, you're with um, the Islam Muslim and Journalism Education at MSU, and one of the goals of that program is to encourage people to look at the media's treatment of Islam. So, through what you've been seeing with the media coverage in the U.S. about what's been going on in Egypt, what are your reactions to the U.S.'s coverage of it? Well, the main the main theme that seems to keep coming back, and your question earlier uh, points in that direction as well, is that this fear that the Muslim Brotherhood will take over, that this is like Iran back in 1978, and the you know a popular uprising in the Middle East, and that uh, you know these youth are naive, that they're going to get pushed out of the way in the Muslim Brotherhood, and we're going to see a hostile Islamic regime emerge on the heels of this protest movement. Uh, this is this seems to be be one of the main concerns expressed by the media. But they're overlooking uh, in, in great detail. This is true from the New York Times through to uh, local reporting uh, in, the, in the newspaper. Uh, you hear it also on NPR. They're overlooking some of the major, major issues which have to do with human rights violations, torture, the Mubarak regime. And so what one gets is clearly an impression, if you follow the situation, you care about the, the region, is that U.S. concerns, U.S. interests are more important than Egyptian rights. And this is this is the story that gets told over and over, and it's like okay for the U.S. to to support a dictator as long as it's supporting U.S. interests. Uh, but there are other examples that we can see where the U.S. Uh, was willing to support popular movements um, when it was in the U.S. interests. So this uh, uh, the, the media seems to be playing a little bit into the opportunistic view of the administration on this, which is that you know fear of Islamic militancy in the region, which has been the justification for repression by the regime. And, um, but in fact, it's, it's been a cross-board blanket repression. And what we've seen in the media is this story, the, the, the fear of the Muslim Brotherhood and a concern that Islamists are going to take over and that we're going to have a hostile um, Egyptian government, hostile to Israel, hostile. And so a, a concern about Israel's interests are more important than Egyptian interests. And this is, you know, again, a real problem. The other thing that I think we're seeing in the media that is of, of great concern to me is um, the idea that the, the U.S. administration is um, able to somehow micromanage this, but also at the same time say that, you know, they don't want to control the destiny of Egypt. And so you get this in, in different readings of, if you read journalists against each other um, and editorials against each other, uh, this kind of thing is, it seems to be coming out. On one hand, it's clear that there's an attempt by the U.S. administration to play a, whole, a role in uh, establishing the future government of Egypt. At the same time, Obama and Hillary Clinton want to come out and say that they're not. And so this is being reported, and, and one, one's getting a conflicted view. The, the, the main concern I have is that uh, people in the U.S. and journalists in the U.S., this story will become old very quickly, and they'll lose interest, and they'll stop following it. And only those who are really concerned with the region will continue to stay tuned. And so... Um, 
you know, that's that's my main concern is that somehow this story stays alive in the media until it is fully resolved and doesn't end up being reduced to, you know, secondary to snowstorms and other events that are more of more local or immediate national interest, which is fair. But still, I think one needs to I'm, I'm concerned that as it loses um, media interest, then the U.S. public will lose interest. And as the U.S. public lose interest, the U.S. administration can go ahead and do whatever it wants without any without worry about what what does what's popular opinion in the U.S. on this, and we don't have really good information at this point on how uh, U.S. publics perceive the situation in Egypt, and it will be interesting to see some of the polls when they come out shortly on on that. So, being with the Islam Muslim and Journalism Education at MSU, can you talk why it's important to have a a, a, depart- or a or a study like this at MSU to focus on on Islam Muslims and journalism. Yeah, this is a, a project that uh, developed um, as part of the Muslim Studies program in conjunction with the School of Journalism, and so it was really the initiative came out of the Muslim Studies program in partnership with a journalist, uh, a professor of journalism. And uh, what we what we found is that uh, the representations of Muslims in the media in the U.S. was lacking in many areas, and that there was a need for the school of journalism here, but schools of journalism around the country, to have a resource that they could turn to to educate professors of journalism and professional journalists themselves. And uh, so we're trying to provide a resource. So this isn't actually like an academic program or anything. There is a course that was developed as part of this initiative. Uh, but this is a ongoing resource with a blog where we post regularly uh, commentary on media coverage of Muslims and Islam. It doesn't tend to focus on foreign policy as such. It really looks more and more at, um, like, what is the image of Muslims that we're getting in the U.S. media more than anything else, and occasionally international media. And we've also tried to include uh, small documentary videos that are available uh, online for people to look at if they want to use them for teaching or for research projects and things like that with experts who who can comment on Islam in an informed manner. So really it's it's that kind of resource. If you're a journalist and you want to know something about Muslims, then you can go to that resource. You can go to that website, which is... uh, I-M-A-J-E at M-S-U dot E-D-U, and it's image dot M-S-U dot E-D-U, and you can find materials there to help you write your story if you're not sure, like, about certain things. So it's not exhaustive, but it tries to target specific problems in reporting. So we've talked a little bit about um, how the news coverage, what what it's like um, in Egypt. You say it's state-controlled. A lot of their um, media outlet is uh, state-controlled, and as we've seen through these protests, they're utilizing social networking sites. Um, can you give a little more explanation as to the um, some differences? Like, let's say if, if I was a Islam or Muslim, Muslim journalist um, in Egypt versus if I was an American journalist, what are the biggest differences that those journalists face um, while trying to cover, let's say, the event like Egypt, what's happening in Egypt? Well, I think across the board, journalists in Egypt, whether they're uh, Egyptian, Muslim or not, are facing serious problems. Uh, Western journalists um, are facing serious problems. I just read an article about two New York Times reporters who were um, detained and witnessed the abuse of other international journalists. So uh, there's no free press in Egypt. And so any journalist is faced with the problem of what you can report, what you can cover, who can be your sources, how you're going to report those sources. Um, And you can do uh, serious damage to yourself or to your sources if you, you know, report things in a certain way. And so, so there, there, the, the, there's ways that some journalists have managed to get around state control. But generally speaking, uh, in the current situation, the repression is so great on journalists and the lack of free press. And this was something that Hillary Clinton actually has directly addressed, uh, but, you know, hasn't really, you know, we haven't really seen that that has had a significant impact. For, for um, Arab journalists in the region, whether they be Muslim or non-Muslim, because there's many Arab journalists who are not Muslims, you know, Christians and not, not religious in any, in any respect. And, I mean, reporting in Egypt um, is, uh, is a serious challenge, as it is in any Arab country right now, because of state control and repression of free press. 
So in the studio is Salan Hassan. He is um, with the Department of English. He's also the coordinator of the Islam, Muslim, and Journalism Education at MSU. And he was in the studio to talk about the current political and economic unrest in Egypt. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. All the gamers look at you as a gang member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Caleb, Marcus, and Chris with NASO, the North American Indigenous Student Organization, and they are here to talk about the 28th Annual Powwow of Love. Welcome to the studio. Hi. Hello. Bonjour. So, to start off, um, let's talk about this powwow. So, it happens every year around, um, the, I want to say the 4th of July, that's not right, uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> that's why it's called the powwow of love. Um, can someone tell me, what are some misconceptions about powwows? Um, that we dance around fires. And where, where do powwows come from, traditionally? What are, the, what are their ultimate purpose? Um, well, nowadays, powwows, um, we come together and dance and have a good time and socialize, um, you know, meet new people, meet old friends. And talk about what will be happening at the powwow this weekend at Jenison Fieldhouse. Uh, well, on Saturday, we'll be able to see some Native American singing, dancing, drumming, um, enjoy some Native American food. Also, check out the vendors for arts and crafts, so... And when you talk about Native American food, describe what that food is. Um, they'll be serving things like fry bread, um, which is a bread that's fried, obviously. Um, on top of that, they'll put some, sometimes like honey, things like that. Also, there will be some like soups, uh, Three Sisters soup. Um, there's also rice soup. So Now, Caleb, talk a little bit more about fry bread and how that that got started or do you, do you guys know the history behind that no uh well um I want to take this one, Chris? from my understanding it goes way back when and um when the tribes were being enforced onto reservation it was a time through allotment that you were given like a fat based um like lard along with your meat and then also flour so there's not too much you can make with those things, so you mix up a bread and fry up some food, so that's what you get is fried bread. So I should um, let our listeners know, um, recently this past year I went on tour of spring break with Caleb, who's in the studio right now, um, and I did a story, a story that I aired on Impact Exposure about our trip to a reservation in South Dakota. Um, so, Caleb, just to re, um, kind of recap for our listeners, can you tell us what um, you observe life being like for Native Americans on reservations today? You know, it really depends on what reservation you're on. Um, there's a lot of issues that are seen through all different types of cultures, you know. So you see things like alcoholism, domestic violence, those sort of things. So it really depends where you're at and what reservation and um, let's talk about more the importance of this powwow. How, where are many people coming from that will be participating in the powwow this weekend? Probably everywhere. Mid, uh, Midwest, I'd say, right? Um, we're, ex- we're expecting most people to come from um, all of the Michigan area, and we're starting to hear that people will be coming from further in the Midwest, like, you know, Wisconsin people from Illinois, maybe nice. even Minnesota. 
So when when Caleb and I went to South Dakota and we went to a reservation there, um, I noticed that a lot of people, there was a big issue with people, um, with Native Americans not participating in ceremonies or things like powwows anymore. Um, do you find that to be true with people, with, I shouldn't say people, but Native Americans that lived in the Midwest area? Um, it's out there, but uh, a lot of our communities are really strong, and a lot of that strength is coming from um, like our parents' generation, they picked up the old traditions back in like the 70s and they passed out, but that down to um, our generation. And that's how a lot of us grew up and that's what a lot of us believe in. So today you'll find a lot of people that um, do follow the old traditions in the Midwest. Excellent. Well, in the studio is the North American Indigenous Student Organization. They're here to talk about the 28th Annual Powwow of Love, which is happening this fe Saturday, February 12th, at the Jenison Fieldhouse here on the MSU's campus. Is there anywhere where people can go for more information, gentlemen? Facebook. Facebook? They can also check out our website at msu.edu slash naso. All right. Well, Caleb, Marcus, and Chris, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yep, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And up next, um, we'll be listening. talking with we'll be talking with um, Republican Senator Rick Jones, and he'll be talking about what he thinks will happen with the uh, film tax incentive under the new administration here in Michigan. Um, but first is a feature on the Michigan film tax incentive and the Creative Film Alliance that took place last summer. All right, and roll sound. Rolling sound. It's speed. Roll cameras. Speed. Cameras rolling. rolling. Marker. Action. Tucked back in the abandoned parking lot of the old Pfizer Research Facility in Ann Arbor is a team of students wrapping up their final week of filming a 30-minute movie called Appleville. Aaron Whitmore wrote the screenplay. Appleville is about, it's, a, it's basically speed on a bus with senior citizens. Two brothers attempt to rob and hijack a bus full of retirees out for a, a mall opening. Whitmore recently graduated from the screenwriting program at the University of Michigan. She's part of the Michigan Creative Film Alliance, a cooperative venture between Michigan State University, Wayne State University, and the University of Michigan. The eight-week program aims to teach students the art and science of filmmaking. It's it's amazing to see something that comes from your imagination start to materialize in front of you. The Creative Film Alliance was developed in response to Michigan's film tax incentive passed in 2008. Critics say the tax incentives are too generous and the proposed production studios have taken too long to materialize. Screenwriter Jim Bernstein is with the Michigan Film Office Advisory Council and says anticipated production studios like Unity Studios and Allen Park didn't happen, not because of a lack of interest, but because of a lack of funding. It's taken us forever to start to build these studios. Now, why is that? It's because Wall Street had a meltdown and the financing for these projects wasn't there. And that happened because the laws passed in 2008 in 2008 is when the crash came. So a lot of these projects that thought they were going to have financing didn't. But Bernstein says he's confident the studios will happen. He says in 2007, only three films were shot in Michigan. The year the film tax incentives passed, 32 films were shot. Last year, that number rose to around 50. He anticipates those numbers will continue to rise this year. Bernstein says despite the hardship Michigan's economy faced, many people have hope for the industry's future. When the big three was going under and everybody in Washington was kicking Detroit while it was down, Clint Eastwood comes here and makes Gran Torino. And at the end of that movie, it was around Christmas time 2008, people stayed and watched the credits. And when it said made in Michigan at the end, people burst into applause. It, it brought tears to your eyes. As coordinator of the screenwriting program at the U of M, Bernstein says more of his students are choosing to stay in Michigan. Before the incentive, almost all of his students left for California or New York. Now, he says, about 80% are staying. I was stunned how much they wanted to stay here and build something. I didn't see it coming. And the opportunities they're getting here are so much greater now than if they moved to L.A. 
Alleviating the brain drain was a goal of Governor Jennifer Granholm's when she signed the bill and was a big motivator for Emory King, chairman of the Michigan Film Office Advisory Council, when he generated the idea for the Creative Film Alliance. What gave me the idea was um, a recognition of the brain drain in Michigan and the uh, clear opportunity for so many talented students at the three major institutions to eliminate any barriers, existing barriers, that would prevent these students from moving freely between uh, these schools to round out their curriculum and their education, with the idea being that with so much work coming here, we can begin to lay the foundation for building an indigenous film industry in the state of Michigan using our own talented resources. Richard Jewell is the Workforce Development Manager for the Michigan Film Office. He's a seasoned actor who is donating his time to perform in Appleville. Jewell says by bringing the three schools together for the first time through film, they can begin to build an alliance in Michigan. Three universities that usually don't see each other, except on a football field, with painted faces and, and, and complaining about calls. Uh, there is no uh, sovereignty of universities in this project. You can't even tell which students belong to which school unless they happen to be wearing their school colors. They're working together. The boundaries are down. They have an objective. And having creative filmmakers working together in Michigan will be a benefit to the film industry. While films receive a 30% tax break for filming in the state, they can receive over 40% in tax breaks if they hire Michigan workers. Kimberly Rice, the managing producer of the Creative Film Alliance, says jobs are coming to Michigan, and she has no doubt about where she'll live after she graduates with her master's from Wayne State. Detroit. I'm here. I would like to stay in Michigan. People have been trying to get me to go away from Detroit since I graduated from high school. And I actually think as far as my career is concerned, I thought it was perfect timing because as soon as I graduated, that's when the whole thing happened, you know, everything. And I was like, wow, maybe I did make a good decision. I'll stay. Bernstein hopes that mentality may be what it takes to help turn the city and the state around. You know, what we want is Motown back in film. And if you can do that, then it's going to be fantastic. Michigan film industry officials say between 2008 and 2009, the industry brought $400 million into Michigan's economy. They expect an additional $300 million this year. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and that was a feature about um, the Creative Film Alliance that happened last summer. Um, it was in, sp in response to the Michigan Film Tax Incentive. And in the studio is <coughs> Senator Rick Jones, and he's here to talk about um, the Michigan Film Tax Incentive under the new administration. Welcome to the show, Senator Rick Jones. Thank you. So when I was putting together this story over the summer, most people I talked to, and this was in August, most people I talked to said that they were worried about the election because they were worried that if Snyder won, then the Michigan Film Tax Incentive would be eliminated right away. There was, they had no doubts about it. So why is it that most conservatives want to eliminate the Film Tax Incentive? Well, I think that many Republicans want to take a careful look at all tax credits because we have a crisis of $1.8 billion. Now, that's billion with a B. And we have to find the money somewhere. So it wouldn't be just film tax credits. It would be any credit. And what is your view on the matter as far as the Michigan film tax credits? You know, I think the tax credits have brought jobs and film to Michigan that wouldn't be here otherwise. So if it's something that wouldn't be here, we wouldn't have made any money anyway. So I favor keeping them, maybe lowering them a little bit, but trying to keep them because we want those films to be made here, Detroit, Marquette, all the beautiful cities in Michigan. And we're talking about the beautiful cities in Michigan. You're from Grand Ledge. Yes, I am. And recently um, they filmed a movie there and the, the name, oh, Red Dawn, the remake of Red Dawn was shot um, a few scenes in there. And now they're actually thinking about um, the new Batman movie possibly filming there as well. 
Actually, yes, uh, the remake of Red Dawn was filmed there. We have beautiful ledges along the river. They were able to make caves out of styrofoam. Very exciting. Unfortunately, it hasn't been released yet. I understand MGM is in bankruptcy, so there's a little holdup, but it's in the can, and it will be shown eventually. So the latest thing is some people checked us out for the remake of Batman, the next Batman 3, actually. And what they really like are some underground cement caverns that actually are part of the water plant. Hmm, interesting. Well, I'm also from the Grand Ledge area, and uh, I definitely know what you're talking about, and I think it'd be a great, uh, a beautiful place to um, film Batman. But is is the reason why some things are being filmed in Grand Ledge, is that maybe why you're you're excited about these um, Hollywood films coming to Michigan and why you um, aren't completely against these film tax credits? No, actually, I originally supported the tax credit. I was a state representative. Now I'm a senator. And I know that if you don't have this incentive, movies will be made in Toronto or other places instead of Detroit, you know, Traverse City, uh, Saugatuck, all the beautiful cities here in Michigan. And we have everything here. We have the Four Seasons. We have beautiful lake shores. We have urban cities. So this is a great place to make a movie. You know, another reason that I really like this is because you get residual tourism. And everybody says, well, what do you mean? What, what I mean is you keep making money. Now, on Mackinac Island, what film was made there? Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve. And people still come to Mackinac Island and buy souvenirs, visit the scenes, and they have a little festival around it. So you can have residual dollars coming to Michigan if you have a hit movie. I think it's worth the gamble. And what do you think is uh, Governor Snyder's stance on the Michigan film tax? And what do you envision him doing with it? Well, Governor Snyder is going to come out with his recommendation on the 17th, so that's about nine days away. He's going to have to recommend cuts and reforms because we have to find $1.8 billion. I would expect that he will recommend maybe some tweaking of the incentive, but I really hope that he isn't going to say, get rid of it. Yeah. And you were saying that maybe, um, as it was it was um, said in the story earlier, um, if, if a film is uh, filmed in Michigan, they can get 40% tax breaks um, if they film in Michigan. So what, what do you think could be modified to keep this around and still keep everyone happy? Well, you know, maybe it would be a little bit less than the 42% or whatever it is, a little bit lower. But as long as we have an incentive, because, you know, if we don't have an incentive, the films won't be made here. So then the tax dollars that we do make are lost. And kind of changing gears and talking more about Snyder's administration, what are you most excited for under this new administration? I am most excited about Rick Snyder because Rick Snyder wants to do everything to make Michigan a place to bring your company or small business or big big business and create jobs. Jobs are the number one need of Michigan. Rick Snyder is the kind of guy, he's a numbers guy, and he wants to change this so we have a good business climate so our future children, students, grandchildren have jobs. And what do you envision Michigan, or how do you envision Michigan getting out of this financial rut that we're in? You say jobs. Well, you know, really... We've been overregulated for years. We, uh, for example, in my district, we have a beautiful General Motors plant. It's the greenest, st- most state-of-the-art car factory in the world. Beautiful plant. Any state or country would love to have it. It took two years to get a permit here in Michigan. Any other state, you would have got the permit in six months or less. We need to fix that. We're going to do it under this governor. So, again, going back to the the Michigan film tax credits, when will we hear again from Snyder as far as what he may decide on the issue? Well, uh, Governor Rick Snyder has said on February 17th he will announce his budget proposal that will include some cuts, that will include some reforms, because, again, we have to find $1.8 billion. And the choices are either a massive tax increase or reforms and cuts. And I can tell you the mood at the Capitol is no more tax increases. Unless, of course, it's on something like 
medical marijuana. <laughs> and which which you've been on City Pulse to talk about that, I, I understand. Um, so, Senator Rick Jones, what have some of the reactions been from Republicans that um, you're a Republican yourself, and what have their reactions been um, knowing that you support the Michigan Film Tax Incentive? Really nothing negative. Uh, they know that I, I am a man of my own opinion, and I don't follow any party line. I am a pretty independent thinker. And, but it hasn't been all negative. I, I mean, a lot of people agree with me. Well, Senator Rick Jones is in the studio, and he's here to talk about uh, the Michigan Film Tax Incentive under the new Snyder administration. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me as a member of the class of 1980. Go green. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Monday nights from 8 till 10, the Asian Invasion brings you the music from the rising sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only on Impact 89 FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing nothing. When suddenly... That's a personal foul. Inactive activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you, and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, back to... Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Stephanie and Emily, representing the Vagina Monologues, which will happen February 18th and 19th, which is next next weekend at the Passant Theater. For more information, you can go to whartoncenter.com. So welcome to the show, Stephanie and Emily. Hi. So talk about Vagina Monologues. How did they begin? Well, the Vagina Monologues began in 1996. Uh, Eve Ensler is the creator of Vagina Monologues. She uh, wrote a one-woman show that was all about vaginas and how um, they they work in with sexuality and um, you know rape, love, um, all all sorts of women's issues. Um, Eve wrote a show about it, and from there um, she produced it. So would you say that the show is um, the main goal is to be funny or is it to send a message, whether it be political or anything of that matter? What I think is wonderful about the show is, first of all, that um, the show has been performed all over the world, everywhere, and it's adapted depending on where it's performed. So there were special monologues written for the show in Harlem. Um, a show in West Virginia made vagina quilts that were hung up in store windows around the town. Here at MSU, the show has a few um, college and MSU-specific notes in it. And um, the show has a spotlight monologue about Haiti this year. And um, so it's also adapted to the time period. Um, the show ha has a few funny moments, like love. Um, the show has a few sad moments. And um, the show also touches on some darker, more difficult themes. So there's a whole range of themes and ideas in the show that I think are communicated gracefully and beautifully. So you mentioned that there's going to be a, a monologue about Haiti in this year's show. Um, can you guys talk about who will benefit from the proceeds of this show? Well, um, every year the Vagina Monologues picks a different country or location in the world that will benefit from uh, 10% of the proceeds nationally. So every performance that's put on uh, donates 10% of their proceeds to a certain location. This year's Haiti. Uh, last year was the Democratic Republic of Congo. And this year, um, the focus being on the women of Haiti, um, because with the earthquake 
and um, a lot of the struggles with different uh, legislation that's gone in with Haiti. Um, we just felt that the money was most important to benefit the women there. Um, while 90% of the the funds of uh, the, the vagina monologues um, will go to the sexual assault program, which is an MSU-based program that um, helps get women counseling for um, after they've been victims of sexual assault. And it also provides a, a many uh, great number of resources for the women of MSU. So can you talk about the, um, actually, I haven't even asked this question yet. What is V-Day? Because I've heard vagina monologues and V-Day being used a lot together. V-Day stands for Victory Day, it stands for Valentine's Day, and it stands for Vagina Day. It's a global activist movement to stop violence against women and girls, which is widespread and heartbreaking. And it's, I have to say, one of the most empowering experiences of my life to be able to make steps against it through such a wonderful program. Well, with that, can one of you read a uh, monologue? Sure. Um... This year, uh, the monologue that I'm doing is called The Vagina Workshop, and it's about a woman who um, experiences uh, discovering her vagina for the first time. So here's an excerpt from it. Then, the woman who ran the workshop asked how many women in the workshop had had orgasms. Two women tentatively raised their hands. I didn't raise my hand, but I had had orgasms. Mm -hmm. I didn't raise my hand because they were... Accidental orgasms. They happened to me. They happened in my dreams, and I would wake in splendor. They happened a lot in the water, mostly in the bath, once in Cape Cod. They happened on horses, on bicycles, on the treadmill at the gym. I didn't raise my hand, because although I had had orgasms, I didn't know how to make one happen. I had never tried to make one happen. I thought they were a mystical, magical thing. I didn't want to get involved it felt wrong getting involved, contrived, manipulative. It felt Hollywood. The surprise would be gone, and then the mystery, the only problem, of course, was the surprise would be gone for two years. <laughs> I hadn't had a magical accidental orgasm in quite some time, and I was frantic. That's why I was at the vagina workshop. And then the moment had arrived that I had both dreaded and longed for. The woman who ran the workshop asked us to take out our hand mirrors again and see if we could locate our clitoris. There we were, the group of us women, on our backs, on our mats, finding our spot, our locus, our reason, and I don't know why, but I started crying. Maybe it was sheer embarrassment. Maybe it was knowing that I had to give up the fantasy, the enormous life-consuming fantasy that someone or something was going to do this for me, the fantasy that someone was coming to lead my life, to choose direction, to give me orgasm. I could feel the panic coming on, the simultaneous terror and realization that I had avoided finding my clitters had rationalized it as consumerist and mainstream because I was, in fact, terrified that I did not have a clitoris, terrified that I was one of those constitutionally incapables, one of those frigid, dead, shut down, dry, bitter, apricot tasting, oh my god. I lay there with my mirror looking for my spot, reaching with my fingers, and all I could think about is the time that I was 10 and I lost my gold ring with the emeralds on it at the lake. How I kept diving over and over, running my hands over stones and fish and bottles and slimy stuff, but never my ring. The panic I felt, I knew I would be punished. The woman who ran the workshop saw my insane scrambling, sweating, and heavy breathing. She came over to me. I told her, I've lost my clitoris. It's gone. Shouldn't have worn it swimming. And that was Stephanie reading an excerpt from the Vagina Monologues. They'll be performed February 18th and 19th at the Passant Theater. Thank you so much for reading, Stephanie. Thank you. <laughs> so can you talk about the impact of V-Day or the Vagina Monologues and what they've, the impact they've made over the past decade? Well, the Vagina Monologues has impacted communities all over the world. For example, V-Day purchased a Jeep for a woman who walked community to community in Kenya and she walked on foot miles and miles and miles to talk about genital mutilation. And um, the V-Day organization made a school for girls who choose um, to escape genital mutilation, which can lead to being um, 
ostracized in communities. And that's just one example of thousands and thousands of ways yeah. that communities have benefited. Yeah. Not, not even, uh, you know, not, not just nationally. We can even look locally at the changes V-Day has made in our community. Uh, for example, two years ago, um, with the help of Vagina Monologues, uh, we raised money for uh, SASE, the Sexual Assault Crisis Intervention, which uh, went to um, paying for uh, a taxi service that would take women who had been sexually assaulted um, to Sparrow and pick them up and give them a ride home so that they wouldn't have to deal with the embarrassment of calling somebody, having to explain it right away. Um, little things like that really make a huge difference in the lives of women. And um, also, cumulatively, uh, last year the show made $14,000 for V-Day, and the year before that, 17000 And so this is a very large movement, and we're very proud to be a part of it. And the proceeds go to local as well as global mm -hmm. charities. Um, I'm curious, my last question, you only have a few seconds, I'm curious, how, what percentage of the audience is men? Well, last year uh, when I was in it, I believe anywhere from 10 to 20 percent are men. It's a, it's a lot, a lot of women. My dad is coming. <laughs> I want to say that my engineer in the other studio oh. went there and was very proud to go there. Well, well done, man. <laughs> we do really appreciate men coming. It shows a great support for. We love um, the peas who support the bees. Support the bees. That's right. We love it. Well, for our special edition of the Michigan Storytelling segment, Stephanie wrote or read an excerpt from the Vagina Monologues, which will be performed February 18th and 19th at Pissant Theater. For more information or for tickets, you can go to WhartonCenter.com. Stephanie and Emily, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact. An exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.